0: Hello everybody and welcome to New Books in Catholic Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. This channel and episode were created in collaboration with the American Catholic Historical Association, a conference of scholars, archivists, and teachers of Catholic studies. My name is Allison Ansidor, and I'm a host of the channel. Today we welcome back Dr. Sean Brennan, a professor of history at the University of Scranton. Sean has written a historical introduction for the memoir Look Out for Below. Look out below. <laughs> a memoir. Ugh. Man, messing that up. Let's try that again. <laughs> Beauty of editing, I can cut all that out. <laughs> That's right.
1: Yep.
0: <laughs> okay. Uh, Sean has written a historical introduction for the memoir Look Out Below, a story of the airborne by a paratrooper Padre, by Father Francis L. Sampson. Uh, And this was published by Catholic University of America Press this June. Look Out Below is a memoir written by Francis L. Sampson, a veteran of the Second World War and the Korean War, whose exploits inspired one of the most famous war movies, Saving Private Ryan. Sampson was part of a rare breed of uh, parachute chaplains. In his case, with the 101st Airborne Division, Samson spent much of his career as an army chaplain in the center of storms of the 20th century. Throughout it all, Samson offered a valuable Christian witness in the darkest times and most difficult circumstances. This second edition of his memoirs, Look Out Below, contains material on his service during the Korean War and occupation, uh, occupation duty, and Germany and Japan, as well as the Second World War. With a new historical introduction written by Sean Brennan. Sean, welcome back to the show.
1: Thank you so much for having me again.
0: Yeah, always. Um... Can you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself if they haven't listened to the first podcast?
1: Sure or the or the one before that or the one after that. Um, yeah, so I'm a professor of history at the University of Scranton. I've been there since 2009 and uh, I'm also on the executive committee of the American Catholic Historical Association for another year, year and a half, I believe. and I've written a number of works on religious history and on the intersection between religious uh, individuals, clergy and laity, and religious institutions during periods of political, uh, social, military upheaval. Uh, So my first work was on the Soviet occupation of Germany after World War II and how the German churches, both the Protestant and Catholic ones, reacted to that. Um, well, my second was a biography of the Passionist priest Fabian Flynn, who, like Father Samson, served in the Second World War as an army chaplain. Um, and then I was commissioned by Catholic University of America Press to do a translation of the Mitrokin archive from Vasily Mitrokin, a KGB archivist and internal Soviet dissident, and the specific records regarding the KGB, the Soviet secret police, uh, and the Vatican. So um, Catholic University of America Press, once again, the way I came across this work is they asked, given my previous experience in writing on these topics, if I'd be interested in writing a new historical introduction, placing some of the things Father Sampson talks about in in historical context uh, for a new edition of his memoirs that they wanted to publish. And, you know, you never say just like you never say no to a book review. You, uh, request, uh, you never say no to an invitation for something like that. It's so tricky to sometimes get things published anyway. When a press asks you to write something, you don't say no. And I think Samson led an amazing life um, and a very heroic, played a very heroic role in both conflicts. And of course also, just like me, he's an alumni of the univ- alumnus of the University of Notre Dame. so there was that connection too.
0: Yeah, I mean you've, you've kind of already knocked out my next question which was how you got into this project right Catholic University uh, of America asked you to write this. Um what I what I thought was really interesting about the the first 30-ish pages of this book is that it has a historical introduction by you um But it also contains a letter from Cardinal Spellman, the Archbishop of New York, uh, a foreword written by Philip uh, M. Hannon, the Auxiliary Bishop of Washington, and an introduction by Thomas F. uh, uh, Hickey, uh, a Lieutenant General of the U.S. Army, along with the original introduction by Samson. Why were these included instead of just, say, having Samson and your introductions in the book?
1: Well, uh, the reason was, was in order to demonstrate in what high regard Samson was held by people in positions of authority in both the Catholic Church and the United States Armed Forces, and how important they saw that this memoir was in terms of conveying uh, what it was like for chaplains and also more broadly for paratroopers, which Father Samson technically was in both the second world war and in the Korean war where paratroopers played a very vital role in both of those conflicts. And the, the the question about this memoir was technically, um, Father Samson wrote two memoirs. The first was paratrooper Padre, which was just about his time in the, uh, the second world war and look out below, which was to also talked about his occupation duty, as you said, in Germany and then in Japan and then his role in the Korean war. And we decided that, um, we should republish lookout below because that gives a fuller account of a lot of his activities. I mean, you know, he was also the head of the chaplain corps during the Vietnam war. he, He traveled to Vietnam during that conflict. Unfortunately, he didn't write a third edition of the memoirs, to really talk about his full story he was also that had an rotc at notre dame for a while so there's so many things about his life that um that you almost wish he had written a third edition of the memoirs but since the second one told the more complete story we wanted to use that but we also wanted to incorporate some of the introduction material that was used in the first one
0: yeah and getting to your introduction you know uh, i was wondering when you were writing it what were you uh What was your method in doing that? Were you going to archives and looking at military records, or what were you doing?
1: I did look up some military records about the, uh, first off, the 101st um, Airborne uh, Division, which he uh, served in, and then also the 506th Airborne Regiment, which uh, is the one uh, uh, he was a paratroop chaplain in. And they served with, but not, not exactly on side, of the 501st, which is, of course, depicted in the famous 2001 miniseries, Band of Brothers. So I looked up a lot of records about that. And then some of uh, the records cause around D-Day and Operation Market Garden, because those were the two big uh, paratroop drops uh, during the later stages of the Western Front of the Second World War. Um, and just some other memoirs and works about chaplains and uh, Americans generally who had spent time in as a German prisoner of, as a prisoner of war of the Germans, particularly during the later stages of World War II. because for Americans captured towards the end of World War II, their experience in German captivity was very different than say those captured earlier in say 1940 1943 or earlier in 1944.. Um, The Germans weren't uh, were in a desperate. This isn't to excuse their treatment of POWs, of course, but the Germans were in a desperate position um, at that point. And let's just say the Germans didn't always observe the niceties of the Geneva Convention regarding to the treatment of prisoners of war during these stages of the conflict. Um, I actually just it's going to come out in the summer edition of American Catholic Studies, I wrote a review of three different uh, documentary films about three different priests and one of the whom was a man named John McNeil and he served in World War II and like Father Samson he was captured during the Ardennes offensive also known as the Battle of the Bulge and he and he nearly starved to death a number of other American soldiers he was with starved to death uh, during the harsh winter of 44 and 45 in German custody and and I could talk more about this later but I that's one reason I, I really thought this um, his memoir is important for understanding World War II, because the experience of serving as a POW during World War II, and also what liberation was like at the end of the war. There's often a lot. There's not much understanding about that in American popular culture, and sometimes how it's depicted in films and and television shows in particular is a very skewed perspective. And I think Samson's memoir is a nice redress of that.
0: Right, yeah, and let's get to Samson, right? He was a chaplain in the U.S. Airborne Division, serving in uh, the Second World War and the Korean War, but also had a career in Vietnam as well, as you've mentioned. Um, can you tell us a little bit about Father Samson? I had never heard of him before picking up this book, to be honest.
1: Yeah, of course. He, um, I mean, I was somewhat familiar with Father Samson before this. For two reasons. One, because of his connection to, to uh, Saving Private Ryan, which I know we'll get the film, uh, which I know we'll get to. Um, and then also, again, just because um, when I was at Notre Dame, I, I heard about him because of his distinguished career. Uh, he was the son of Irish immigrants. So he was born in the United States, specifically in the uh, town of Cherokee, Iowa, to the northwestern part of the state in 1912 but both of his parents came from County Cork in Ireland. And so uh, he attended a public high school, but then he, again, attended the University of Notre Dame and prepared for the priesthood. He attended St. Paul's Theological Seminary in Minnesota, and he graduated there for a master's degree in theology in 1941. Uh, And then he was ordained a priest in the Diocese of Des Moines in June of 1941. So, again, if you're an Iowan uh, he um, all, he had a huge connection to that state. He always loved that state and spent as much time there as he could. Um, and that's where a lot of his work uh, just as a priest uh, came from. Uh, but kind of like Father Flynn, once the United States becomes involved in the Second World War, uh, he had a strong desire to enter into the U.S. Armed Forces to serve as a, a chaplain. And... Unlike Flynn, who, because of his health problems, had to go through a lot of different uh, appeals and issues with his order um, to try and uh, enter into the chaplain service, Samson really didn't have that um, that many problems, um, despite the fact he'd only been priest for um, less than a year. And, uh, again, the United States Armed Forces were desperate to get as many chaplains as possible because there were never— there was never enough chaplains, uh, whether they were Jewish, Catholic, Protestant, or Orthodox, to provide for the, the, the numbers of soldiers who they'd have to provide spiritual leadership to. Uh, and so, uh, again, like Flynn and like many, many other chaplains, um, the, most chaplains had to provide spiritual leadership uh, to soldiers who weren't Catholic, doesn't mean necessarily they gave the communion or they heard confession, but it's not. But Catholic chaplains, Protestant chaplains, Jewish and Orthodox ones all came in with the understanding that you're going to provide spiritual leadership and aid to anyone who needs it. And uh, they accepted that. And also, I might have mentioned this in the Flynn podcast, but there were a lot of regional differences with the chaplains as well. Most of the Catholic ones came from either New England or they came from the upper Midwest, like Samson. And a lot of the uh, Protestant chaplains came from the South. So, uh, and again, America at the time was, in the 1940s, was obviously 80 years ago, very different than now. It was not as uh, ethnically diverse. And also, um, it was a lot less common for Americans from different regions to travel to other regions, unless their job required it. So for a lot of Americans serving in World War II, Uh, This was their first time meeting people of different faiths, meeting meeting Americans of different faiths, meeting Americans from different geographical areas. And so they were just all kind of thrown into that and also to prepare for service in the greatest war in human history, you know, being fought uh, on different sides of the world.
0: Yeah, I mean, that was such an interesting aspect of this memoir to read about was that his time, his early time, and uh, 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 his early time getting into the military, and that was interesting to me because I had never really, I don't really know much about chaplains, uh, other than, um, say, like them being in a hospital setting. Uh, that's my only experience, and I think, uh, many people have that experience if they don't have that military connection, right um and so for him to also be a paratrooper that was fascinating
1: yeah and by his own admission he kind of just joined it on a whim he thought that they they desperately needed chaplains to be uh for that service because the physical requirements were so demanding and he he basically said that you know would determine the rest of the course of my life but i just thought oh yeah that sounds that sounds like that could be fun that, that could be an interesting adventure i'll try it and he said if he had known all the the the, the physical demands brought about of it uh he might have might have given it a second thought
0: right yeah um but as you mentioned earlier and as I mentioned in the introduction, you know, uh, his memoir uh, inspired one of the, like, most famous war movies, uh, Saving Private Ryan. And you bring up also Band of Brothers at the start of your introduction yeah. as well. Um, you know, these media, these films, this television... Uh, and other historical narratives, as you explain in the introduction, were influenced by memoirs like Sampson's. However, Sampson specifically, you say, gets a few of the details wrong when writing about his encounter on Utah Beach uh, weeks after D-Day and uh, his interactions with a private named uh, Frederick Fritz uh, Nyland. Uh, Can you tell our listeners about that encounter and what details samson got wrong
1: yeah so nylon was a member of h company of the 501st parachute infantry regiment which is the one again samson served in if i again the 501st uh the one from Banner brothers 506th um yeah there's uh, there's two issues one the uh samson in his memoirs gets the names of two of the brothers incorrect um and also the circumstances of it that that uh Fritz Nyland, the circumstances, as Samson describes, is that Nyland lost all three of his brothers and that his mother was in combat in the Second World War, two in Europe, two actually um, during the D-Day invasion and afterwards, and one in the Pacific, and that their mother received the three telegrams all at the same time, informing the fate of her son. So that's that's what he says And that's how it's depicted in in Saving Private Ryan, right? Well, in reality, the mother did receive three telegrams uh, that day, but two of them said that two of her sons had died in Europe. But the other son, Robert Nyland, um, uh, the other son, excuse me, not Robert Nyland, but um, the oldest brother, Edward. So the two who died were Robert Nyland, who was killed on D-Day, and the other was Preston Nyland, who was killed on June 7th, uh, both when they were engaged in combat, the Germans. But the oldest brother, Edward, he was serving in the Pacific, and his plane had been shot down by the Japanese over Burma. What is It was a former British colony. It's now known as Myanmar. Uh, so that's where a lot of intense fighting between the Americans, the British on one side, and the Japanese on, an, on the other Occurred uh, in the Paci- in the Pacific War outside of the island hopping campaign. So the telegram she received about Edward was that he was M I A, missing in action, not K I A, killed in action. And actually, and I the, this always amazes me. Edward survived. Um, he was shot down over the over Burma. He wandered around the jungles for a few days, and it's amazing he survived that. And then he was captured by the Japanese. And it's amazing, frankly, he survived that as well, because the Japanese were notoriously brutal. The Japanese military was notoriously brutal to POWs, whether they were American, Australian, British, Chinese, um, Filipino. And uh, he was liberated by the British Army on May the 4th, 1945. And uh, so uh, actually, so Fritz Nyland only lost two of his brothers, the one who in the film is depicted as dying in the Pacific, miraculously survived. Uh, but that error is still in the edition of uh, the old edition of Lookout Below. And because Samson's story was so famous, that gets repeated in a number of fa- other historical works about D-Day. That, oh, there was this soldier named Francis Nyland. He lost three brothers um, almost simultaneously just with over a few days, the mother received the telegrams the same day and the U S army got him back to his family. So they didn't lose all of their sons. Um, so again, two of the brothers had died. Uh, the oldest one actually survived, but his fate wasn't known, uh, for until the, until May the 14th of 1945, towards the end of the second world war. The other thing is of course, in the movie, uh, james francis ryan played by matt damon kind of a star making role for him um refuses to abandon his men and you know the 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 soldiers sent to find him the paratroopers sent to find him uh staged this big last stand against the germans this huge battle um, holding this bridge against them and most of the the soldiers who went to find ryan Um, Are killed. I don't want to. I now feel sorry. Spoilers for a 25 year old movie. If anyone hasn't seen it, I won't say specifically who is, but there aren't many survivors. Ryan is one of them. In real life, it wasn't really that dramatic. That once um, Samson had ascertained that Nylon had lost uh, two of his brothers and possibly a third, um, he was sent away from the combat zone and sent back to the United States. So there wasn't some big final battle, uh, and only after he survived that was he set home. It wasn't that dramatic. I mean, once they had visited the graves of two of the brothers and the circumstances were clear, he was sent back home to his family. And and then eventually the older brother, Edward, was able to um, rejoin them uh, following his own liberation about a year and a half later. So ironically, uh, there's a scene in in, uh, Saving Private Ryan where it's right before the final battle, where Matt Damon's character is talking to Tom Hanks about the night before his oldest brother went to enlist, and that was the last time the four of them were together, right? It tells a very funny story about that. Um, and in real life, that brother that uh, the real-world equivalent of Ryan Nyland is talking about was the other survivor. But that made it into a book by Stephen Ambrose, and Stephen Ambrose, for a while, was like the dean of of works on the second world war and works on the common soldiers during world war ii not the professional soldiers but the men who were drafted who were just wait, doing this their duty to fight against either the germans or the japanese and then wait for the big boat home and that he wrote a uh, book on uh, d-day and that made it in the hands of the screenwriter robert rodat who wrote the screenplay for saving private ryan and and then Steven Spielberg, of course, was very interested in that. And then away we
0: go. Right. And I mean, I think that's one of the most incredible parts of this memoir is your your introduction pointing out that, hey, he got it wrong. This is this isn't necessarily correct. And it's had this long lasting impact on how we memorize or memorialize World War Two through different media's.
1: Yeah. And, and again, it, it, it's still a remarkable story. It is still true. I can't, you know, I've, I have uh, two brothers myself. I couldn't even imagine finding out both of them were killed at the same time. Right. But um, uh, yeah, it's, it's amazing how you go back, you look at the memoir and then, you know, you look up the further historical details and it doesn't really take away from the, necessarily from the impact of the film or the memoir, but it, it does give you a clearer picture about uh, what happened. I, and you know, if I can go to the the Pacific Theater again, I mean, they're constantly that famous photograph of the Marines raising the American flag on Mount Suribachi. The the Marine Corps has done a number of investigations. They found that some of the men who claimed to be in that photograph actually weren't, mm-hmm. and and some people who who were actually there were um were misidentified as not being there, and so that's been that's been revised numerous times.
0: Right. Yeah um so getting to like what you describe and i completely agree with you is the darkest chapters in this memoir is uh samson's time as a pow you know he there's two chapters dedicated to this um mm. what was his experience like uh at uh i might butcher this uh stalag uh 2a uh and um, what was that experience like for him? Did he, being a Catholic chaplain, change his experience from, say, like other POWs in the camp?
1: Yeah, I like to say that Samson had one and a half uh, times in captivity because he was captured on D-Day and, and interrogated by some German officers. that looked like they might execute him and some of the men he was with. He talks about how a German sergeant who was Catholic could recognize Samson as a chaplain said, look, the man's a chaplain, the soldiers he's with are he was providing uh, spiritual aid to them. He he you know, we can't kill him. And then after interrogating him, the Germans just kind of let him wander off. Uh, But the but the uh, second time was, of course, during the Ardennes offensive. In December of 1944. Uh, And basically, just to set the context for this here, um, D-Day, of course, was a military disaster for the Germans because, um, as Rommel correctly said, uh, he was the famous desert fox of World War II, who Hitler had put along with Gerrit von Rundstedt as the commander of German forces in northwest France. Rommel famously said, we either stop the Allies on the beach or we don't stop them at all. If we don't drive them back into the channel on the first day... If they establish a foothold in Nor- wherever they land, uh, and we can't drive them off, they will eventually break out and will start marching eastward. And in the meantime, we're dealing with the Red Army marching westward. We'll caught be caught between the two of them, and and there's no way we can possibly win this war after that. Uh, and of course, you know it, it takes them a while, but the Allied Expeditionary Force does break through Normandy. Uh, by late June, early July, in Operation Cobra, and then by August, Paris is liberated. But then, but then, the Germans have a series of military victories. The um, Allied Expeditionary Force gets bogged down on the Western Front at the Battle of the Hürtgen Forest, which basically turns into a World War One-style stalemate. Uh, you have Operation Market Garden, uh, which was an attempt to drop thousands of American and British paratroopers behind German-occupied lines in the Netherlands to seize all these bridges over the Rhine river that ultimately fails. And so for Germany's military leadership, they have the perspective that, um, okay, this is kind of like world war one. Again, we control the center. We have enemies on the periphery. We send German forces to the West or the East to fight back the allied expeditionary force or the red army, uh, depending on where they're needed. But for Adolf Hitler, who's less inclined now to trust his military leadership anyway, after the military coup attempt against him on July 20th, 1944, decides, now nah, we're not going to do that. We're going to launch a massive offensive in the West. Uh, because Hitler thought his general strategy of kind of stalling for time, with and that was really Germany's only hope, was uh, that the g- Allies would start quarreling with each other, and Germany could sign an armistice with one or the other. Hitler thought that uh, that all that would do is delay Germany's defeat. It would not prevent it. So he calls for a massive offensive in the West, uh, which comes to get to the Ardennes Forest. The idea that Germany could replicate its great victory in 1940 over the British and the French armies and, again, literally push the Allies back to the sea and take the key ports of Antwerp and possibly Le Havre, which were the two main ports that Supplies were being uh, dropped off for the allied expeditionary force, and the offensive uh, was a winter offensive. Winter offensives are notoriously hard to pull off. Uh, we, you know, just today the Ukraines finally start the Ukrainians started their big offensive against the Russians, and that took months to set up. And it's in the summer, so uh, winter offensives are hard to pull off. But the Germans did anyway. Uh, Hitler thought that it would boost the morale of his soldiers to attack after so much retreating, and it took the Allies completely by surprise. I mean, the Ardennes Offensive failed in, in taking Antwerp, pushing the Allies back into the sea, largely because, despite having the element of the surprise, Germany had next to no Air Force to speak of at the time, and their army units were totally dependent upon cloud cover. Um, but they did succeed and taking tens of thousands of British, American, and Canadian soldiers prisoner um, in late December and early, late December of 1944, early January of 1945. And Samson specifically was taken prisoner on December 20th of 1944, uh, while basically looking for bodies of American paratroopers who had been killed in the um offensives and also looking for abandoned american medical equipment because that's another thing chaplains had to do and what made their work so difficult they had to identify the bodies of dead soldiers and in many cases not just perform last rites for them but help bury them as well uh literally both samson and father flynn as well literally had to dig the graves of dozens if not hundreds of soldiers because often there just wasn't anyone else around besides the chaplain and, and maybe one or two other soldiers to help. So he gets captured by the Germans, and he spends the rest of the war in uh, German custody at Stalag 2A, which was located in Mecklenburg-Vorpommern, which is in the north, what is now in the northeastern part of Germany. Uh, and he's there with about 80,000 other Allied prisoners, so that's the British, the, the, the French, a number of Canadian soldiers, a number of Polish soldiers, Italian soldiers, uh, after Italy switches sides in 1943, uh, and also soldiers from Yugoslavia. There was a contingent of Serbians there and a number of Russian and Ukrainian soldiers as well. Uh, so it was kind of like a little United Nations there. <laughs> but uh, Samson argues the Germans were only barely um, observing the Geneva Conventions in terms of providing adequate food and medical care for the Allied POWs. Uh, The camp conditions were filthy. A lot of soldiers died because of poor sanitation and poor medical care. And, um, I mean, one of the things that's often written about World War II is that the Germans abided by the Geneva Convention, which the German government had signed, which said, among other things, You can't summarily execute prisoners of war. You can't use them for slave labor. The only thing they have to give to their captives are their name, their rank, and their serial number. And you have to provide them with adequate food, housing, and medical care. Now, for much of uh, World War II, the Germans observed that with regards to British or French, or after 1941, in a really 42, 43, it's when he started encountering American soldiers in large numbers for American POWs. The Germans did not observe the Geneva Convention with regards to Soviet POWs. Uh, over half of prisoners of war taken by the Germans from the Red Army died in German captivity. Um, and again, the Germans' position was, we don't need to follow the Geneva Convention regarding Soviet prisoners because the Soviet Union never signed it. Um, of course, this, that went the other way, too. Uh, the Soviets didn't abide by the Geneva Convention either, dealing with Axis p- prisoners of war. But uh, for the Americans, it was a very rough environment during this time period. And uh, this is why I'm glad we published a new edition, because way too often, um, captivity in a German POW camp is often depicted as not that different from like being like a summer camp for grown men. right? And again, that even leaving aside Bob Crane's antics, leave it at that, uh, that notorious 60s TV show Hogan's Heroes is the most notorious example of that, where it's full of wacky adventures, the Germans are basically incompetent, and and there's very few actual Nazis around. Um, it's a nice, uh, his those sections of the memoir are a nice counterpoint to that, where he depicts how rough it was. And for a lot of Soldiers from the Allied Expeditionary Force. Um, Anthony DeVore, who's a great historian of World War II, he's written a great work a few years ago on the Ardennes Offensive, he makes the case that the, the way the Germans fought on the Eastern Front against the Soviets, not taking prisoners of war sometimes, summarily executing them, um, brutal treatment towards POWs if they did take them in, uh, that now that was happening on the Western Front. Because a lot of the Germans who were spearheading the Ardennes Offensive were combat veterans of the Eastern Front. Which, again, that's not a surprise. I mean, 80% of German soldiers, 80-85% of German soldiers who died in World War II died on the Eastern Front. Um, But anyway, so, uh, again, it it was during this kind of, these final stages of the war from December 1944 until the surrender of Germany in May of 1945, the way it was fought and the nature of it really changes on the Western Front as well. And the other thing is, and, and a lot of movies and TV shows kind of depict this, it's always kind of assumed that, well, you know, at the end of the war, the Americans were liberated by the U- The U.S. Army showed up to liberate them. The British showed up to liberate them. No, actually, for a lot of American soldiers who were liberated at the end of World War II, they were liberated by the Red Army because a lot of the German POW camps were located in the northeastern part of Germany, or it's now the northwestern part of Poland, right? That Germany loses all this territory at the end of World War II, at the Yalta and Potsdam conferences, Stalin, Churchill, and Roosevelt, and then Truman agree, yeah, Germany's going to lose a lot of territory to Poland because Poland's losing a lot of territory to the Soviet Union, right? But at the time, uh, that's where a lot of the POW camps were. And so... Um, the Americans were liberated by the Red Army. And Samson got to see firsthand what a lot of Americans didn't get to see firsthand, which was the reality of the Eastern Front in World War II, which was so different from the Western Front in so many ways. Like, he talks about how the German guards and the commandant and the staff were mortally afraid of the Red Army and the Soviets. And so they actually surrendered themselves to the American POWs, shortly before the soviets got there and asked the americans to lock them up like you you can be in charge of the camp you can meet the soviets when they come in and for a lot of them that didn't save their lives the soviets just dragged them out and executed them anyway and so a lot of the pow's who were liberated from the camp um just went on kind of and as well as some of the red army soldiers just went on kind of a a uh, bloodbender of looting and indiscriminate violence against German civilians in the nearby towns. And Samson says he, the America, he he and some other chaplains and other officers were able to persuade the Americans to try not to engage in that kind of behavior. Um, and Samson says at one point conditions were so bad at the camp, a lot of the soldiers, the American POWs, start, started talking about staging an escape, but just rioting against the Germans like we're probably we're going to die in this camp but we can take a whole bunch of German guards with us and Samson was able to persuade them not to do it because he said no we'll all die if you do that and again during the uh, again during the Battle of the Bulge there were a number of incidences like the Malmedy Massacre of German soldiers doing just that if POWs even looked at them the wrong way of, of executing them and and then eventually, um, they it t- and it took a little while for a lot of them to be fully released because Stalin had informed Truman and um, Churchill and Attlee when he takes over that we want you to transfer all of these Soviet citizens back to us, or we won't give you your POWs back. Uh, We believe these are people who collaborate if the Germans against us. And because, you know, the British and American governments wanted to get their POWs back, they did transfer a lot of people who had fled to the British occupation zones, the American occupation zones, to the Soviets. And Stalin had a lot of these people shot. And those who weren't were sent to concentration camps in Siberia or Kazakhstan. And those who were still alive in 1956, Khrushchev gave them an amnesty. Now, Samson wasn't aware of all this, but... He talks about, you know, it took us a while to get us back, ultimately, to American lines, and that's why. And, again, for a lot lot of American readers have no real idea about any of this. And he brings it to life in a way, even like a book I would write, couldn't because he saw it and experienced it firsthand.
0: Right, exactly. And, like, kind of going back to what we were talking about with, like, Saving Private Ryan, you know, or Band of Brothers, this uh the way it's been depicted is not necessarily correct or it's been miskewed um to fit a certain narrative. Uh and so you're right, Samson does give us this reality check in some ways by showing us really the darkest sides of POWs um uh or the the darkest experiences that they went through.
1: And and this was a common you're right. And this was common in a lot of um uh, Liberated camps, not just POW camps, but also concentration camps, also liberated by the Red Army. Um, that often, sometimes it's depicted that when the liberation of the camps occurs and the Allies show up and the Germans run away, that's the end. Then the sun rises over the hill, that's the end of the story. And that's not. And uh, there's what goes on afterwards. And, and, how people survived and and try to uh, return some normalcy to their life in extraordinary times is a crucial part of the story as well. I mean, I'm always joking with my students because I've written a lot about this that you know, European history, world history doesn't end after 1945 right? And that's why, again, I, I I personally pushed for that Look Out Below, get a new edition, because he talks about his experience in occupation duty in Germany, and then he talks about his experiences in Korea. Because uh, I've always actually argued that, um, in many ways, the Korean conflict uh, is kind of a continuation of an era that begins in the late 30s and continues up to the early 1950s. Uh, i um, like, so in 1937, for example, China and Japan go to war, which was the beginning of the second world war in the, in, in, Asia. Right. And then I would say this begins an era that goes the next 16 years until 1953 the death of Stalin and the ending of the Korean war. And so Samson's memoir takes us through a lot of that period. And, uh, like another thing he had a really unique perspective on was, uh, during the Korean war. Um, in the fall of 1950, after the uh, General Douglas MacArthur's surprise landing at Inshan had routed the North Koreans and the UN coalition was kind of chasing the North Koreans above the, uh, the, parallel, the 38th parallel and trying to unify all of Korea under, under the UN auspices, um, Samson was there for the fall of Pyongyang. That was the one time in the Cold War the communist capital actually fell to an allied army. And he talks about um, the fact that one group of people who were coming out and welcoming the American and South Korean soldiers as liberators were, was the Christian community in uh, Pyongyang, which had been so viciously persecuted by uh, Kim Il-sung's regime. And uh, again, I mean, they weren't able to hold Pyongyang for too long, unfortunately, because a few months later, China intervenes in the Korean War and um, throws and then throws the UN coalition backwards. And I like to think Samson was actually transferred to the South before that happened, or otherwise he might have been in captivity a third time.
0: Right, yeah. And, you know, it's a great transition to now. Moving on to talking about his experience in Korea, right? Um, what was uh, his role in the Korean War? What did, uh, how was it different than his time, say, in Germany and France?
1: Well, this time he was with a different, uh, he was with a different unit. He was with the the 11th, uh, the 11th Airborne um, uh, Division in this case, not with, with the uh, 501st. Um, and his his time there was a little shorter. He wasn't involved in the Korean War quite as long as he was in the uh, in the Second World War. Uh, but um, so he wasn't there until its conclusion. Uh, he but he talks about his experiences there as um, giving him hope that uh, of the greater that for all the cultural differences between himself and and what he observed in both Japan and in Korea. He was comforted by the fact that, for example, Japan and the United States had been vicious enemies just shortly before, but he said that occupation duty in Japan went very easily, the people there are very friendly, they don't view America as an enemy anymore. And also, Japan didn't have a very large Christian population, but Korea did. So Samson kind of saw that uh, his role... in in the Korean War was not just providing spiritual aid to American soldiers once again, but also to Korean civilians who had suffered in in a conflict, and particularly Korea's rather sizable Christian community. And he spends a lot of time in his memoirs talking about um, the experiences of Korean refugees who had fled from the North to the South due to their persecution for religious beliefs, whether they were catholics or methodists or what have you
0: yeah i think we have time for one more question sure as we wrap things up here um so you've written this historical introduction are you going to be currently working on anything new are there any more historical introductions you're writing or writing your forewords you're writing um or has your work moved in a new direction
1: Well, um, I'm I don't have any other historical um, introductions lined up right now that I'm I'm writing, although I will accept any invitations to do so. I'm actually writing a um, history. I'm putting together a primary source collection of the essential speeches of the Cold War. So um, uh, I picked like forty-five speeches. So I'm writing a little historical introduction to each one, adding some historical footnotes for a greater context. Um, actually, my work in Lookout uh, on this new edition of Lookout below kind of inspired that in many ways. Uh, but then, um, and then I'm also working on a writing project looking at a depiction of the the Cold War in film. But another book that is going to directly tie back into religious history again is. I want to write a history of the years 1979 to 1981, talking about the end of detente and the resuming of a very tense period in the Cold War. And a figure who plays just a huge role in that is, of course, John Paul II. So he'll be a very significant figure um, in that work. Um, And also about how um, more broadly I have an interest in, in the use of religious language and symbology in Cold War discourse. So we'll see where that takes me.
0: Well, that all sounds uh, fascinating, and I can't wait to to read it. Uh, Sean, thanks for being on the show again.
1: Thank you so much for having me, Allison. I appreciate it.
0: Yeah, uh, this has been uh, New Books in Catholic Studies, a podcast panel on the New Books Network. Mm-hmm.